So please give your attention as I read uh, Daniel chapter 5, verses, you know, the whole chapter really, verses 1 through 31. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, and greatness, and glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But 
When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, or hear, or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand of the then, sorry, then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed Mene Mene Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, history is replete with stories of children or grandchildren who have inherited great wealth or inherited great power and then have squandered that great wealth or squandered that power. It typically starts with an individual, a man usually, though it could be a woman, who builds an empire, a political empire or financial empire, then passes that on to his children. This empire that he builds, he works he plans, he executes, and through the hard work, an empire is built, and then when it's given to the children, people who have not known what it takes to build it, people who do not understand the value of what it took to put into it, they end up typically squandering it. And then before you know it, the empire is at an end. In a lot of ways, Daniel chapter 5 is like that. Now, we're not told how much time has elapsed between chapter 4 and chapter 5, but since the story ends here with the fall of Babylon to, the, to Darius the Mede, uh, the story must take place then in the year 539 B.C. And here we see the great empire that King Nebuchadnezzar built, the great empire that he had sort of brought up from scratch and had created and took over the known world here will collapse. It was passed down to his sons and to his grandsons, and now we see that empire lost now, we could go on and list all of the political reasons, all the historical reasons why Babylon fell, but we know from this text that this is a judgment. God has pronounced judgment on Babylon. God has pronounced judgment on King Belshazzar for his sacrilege. And we also know that God had promised, right, from chapter 2, the dream, how 
the head of gold, Babylon, would give way to the torso made of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was a judgment because they failed to honor the Most High God. And this is the lesson that King Belshazzar learns, a very important truth, namely this. Those who have not humbled themselves before God will be found wanting. Those who refuse to humble themselves before God will be weighed and found wanting. Now the passage here, of course, opens with a feast. Here we see King Belshazzar. He's throwing a lavish party for his lords, for his wives, for his concubines. And just before we go on, I want to say a few words about Belshazzar. Because Belshazzar is a sort of a rather insignificant figure in Babylonian history. He was the son, the direct son, not of Nebuchadnezzar, but of King Nebuchadnezzar and his co-regent. So there's that word that we see there, father, when he says that Nebuchadnezzar is your father, it could be translated typically as ancestor or predecessor. So Belshazzar is sort of like the son of King Nebuchadnezzar and was his co-regent. And when King Nebuchadnezzar was out trying to defend the empire, Belshazzar would sort of sit in his place and rule in his place when his father was out. Now here's Belshazzar living fat and happy on the successes of his previous kings, of King Nebuchadnezzar and previous rulers. And it's also significant to learn that this party is happening at the very moment that Babylon is in the process of falling to the Medo-Persian Empire. The barbarians are almost literally at the gates. And here is King Belshazzar throwing a party for his friends. This was not some official state function, but a party that would soon devolve into a drunken bash complete with blasphemy and sacrilege. Note the presence of wives, plural, and concubines. Note also the defiling of the Jewish religious vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar himself captured when he conquered Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took those artifacts, brought them back to Babylon, and put them into the temple of his own gods. But even King Nebuchadnezzar himself did not sink to the level that Belshazzar does, right? Even though those vessels were in the temple of their gods, Belshazzar takes those artifacts and then use them, uses them in his own worship to worship the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now again, how descriptive of this is of man's fallen nature? We saw when we looked at the Heidelberg, right? Man's misery. How descriptive of this is this of man's fallen nature? Here we see the world is falling apart right around Belshazzar. Enemies are knocking on the door. Yet there's always time to have a party, right? That's the time to party. That's the time to party and mock God. Just as in the days of Noah, we're told that they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the rain started to fall and judgment came upon them. Here we see the same thing. Belshazzar is drinking. He's having a fun time. He's having a party. He's, he's mocking the Jewish God. And that's when we see that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He will not suffer fools for long and that's what we see as we look now to verses 5 through 9. We see the message that the Lord has for Belshazzar. 
Because no sooner do we see these golden vessels brought out of the temple and used in this sort of pagan, sacrilegious celebration of these false gods, the Lord responds in verse 5 where we see immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And that word there immediately catches our attention. It is just at the moment that, that Belshazzar and his family and his friends are sitting there having this Bacchus party that the hand appears. Again, God does not suffer fools for long. This ghostly hand appears and begins to write on the wall. And this writing, we're told, is opposite the lampstand, meaning it was there visible for all to see at the party. They could all see this writing happening. They can all read and see it. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I'd like to think if I saw a spirit hand, a ghost hand, just sort of writing on the wall here behind me, I think I would be rightly freaked out. It would terrify me. And that's exactly the reaction Belshazzar has, right? Look at verse 6. His color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. The king is almost like literally falling apart before his party, before the people at his party. His color drains from his face. Right? His thoughts now, you know, of course he's probably in a drunken stupor, but then he's shocked into sort of sobriety and his thoughts start to alarm him. We're told his limbs gave way. Literally, the text says the joints of his loins are loosed. Some believe here that the king lost control of his bodily functions at this point when he saw the hand writing on the wall. And then his knees knocked together. The king here is, in a, is a literal and figurative mess as his hand is writing on the wall. And we'll get to why the king is, a, is in a mess in a moment, but the king's first reaction after falling apart when he sees the writing on the wall is to call loudly for his wise men. Summon the wise men so they can read and interpret what this writing means. In fact, the king is so anxious to know what it means that he, he offers a princely sum to the one who can read and interpret it, making him third in the kingdom. Of course, you know, Nabonidus would be one, Belshazzar would be second, so it would be right after him, third in the kingdom. Unfortunately, you know, the wise men here are sort of like the keystone cops, right? You know, whenever they're called in, they can never do anything right. You know, the wise men are called in and they cannot interpret the message. They cannot read, much less interpret the message. And we've seen this before, right? When, when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream in chapter 2, he calls the wise men and they cannot tell the king his dream, nor can they interpret it. In chapter 4, when the king has a dream, he even tells him the dream and the wise men can't interpret it. And here, we have writing on a wall. The wise men come in, they cannot read the writing, they cannot make the interpretation. We've seen this before. And the lesson here, of course, is that earthly human wisdom cannot decipher divine or heavenly truth. This message was quite literally from the very hand of God, writing on the wall, this message of judgment for Belshazzar. And the human wise men, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the astrologers, whatever you want to call them, cannot interpret this message. It cannot be interpreted by the wisdom of the world. It is a complete failure, 
an utter and complete failure of human wisdom to discern revelation from God. Now back to the king's reaction to the message. Even though he didn't know what it said or what it meant, there was probably some small part in the king's alcohol-fogged mind that realized this writing as an ill omen. This is bad news. I mean, I have no experience with it, but I would imagine if I'm sitting here having a lavish party, making fun of the gods that I've captured, and I see a handwriting on the wall, it probably wouldn't be good news. It would probably be very, very bad news. He understands it as an ill omen. And even in a drunken stupor, the king was beginning to understand that you cannot mock God and get away with it. So now, let us look to the interpretation, verses 10 through 28. So as the king is falling apart before our very own eyes, we see now the queen, again, probably better understood as the queen mother, come in after hearing all of the commotion at the party. She comes in and she gives some advice to Belshazzar. She says that there is a man in whom the spirit of the holy gods resides. You need to call him. You need to call Daniel. Look at verses 11 and 12. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So the queen says, call Daniel because your father, the king, you know, and I like how she repeats it, you know, the king, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, that guy, the guy who started the kingdom, the guy who was the first and best ruler, he knew Daniel, he knew the value of Daniel and he raised him to be the chief of all the wise men. Now, we don't know for sure, but it appears that perhaps Daniel had been relegated to sort of relative obscurity at this point. Perhaps he had been forgotten, sort of like what we read in, in Exodus when a new pharaoh comes into control in Egypt. A pharaoh who did not know Joseph comes into to leadership. Here, perhaps Belshazzar didn't know who this Daniel was. But the queen mother remembered. She remembered because she recalls how Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar, how he served him faithfully, explaining these dreams, making known these riddles. So she says, send for Daniel. So Daniel's brought in before the king, and note how the king addresses him in verse 13. The king says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my king the father brought from Judah. Kind of disrespecting him there a little bit, I think, right? He doesn't refer to Daniel, the one whom his father named chief of the wise men. He refers to him as a, an exile, as a slave. You're one of the guys we captured. So then the king rehearses the speech that his mother made about Daniel, about all the wonderful things that he had done, and mentions that the court astrologers were unable to read and interpret this message that has been written on the wall. So then Belshazzar goes to Daniel and says, I will make you the same offer that I made the wise men. I will make you third ruler in the nation. I'll put you in purple clothing and all these other wonderful things 
And I will do that if you can read and interpret this message for me. Now apparently, the icy feelings between Daniel and Belshazzar were mutual. Because Daniel, when he begins to address the king, does not use the typical address that we saw the queen use earlier, O king, live forever. That's sort of a typical standard address that you would make to the king. And he refuses, he flat out refuses Belshazzar's offer of a reward for interpreting the message. Now there are all kinds of speculation as to why Daniel refuses the offer of reward. Some say that Daniel here is refusing sort of a pay-to-play scheme, a pay-to-play scenario in which Belshazzar says, give me an interpretation that I like, and I will make you third ruler in the kingdom. Others think, and I agree, that Daniel, pun very much intended, saw the writing on the wall. He saw the writing on the wall and knew that Belshazzar's days were numbered. So what reward that he would give him would be an empty reward. It's like, you're going to reward me and make me third ruler in the kingdom? You're going to die tonight. What good is that reward? And Belshazzar's days are numbered. And this promise of reward was as meaningless as anything. So now in verses 18-23, through 23, Daniel reminds Belshazzar of the greatness of his father, King Nebuchadnezzar. How the Most High God raised up King Nebuchadnezzar and made him feared among all the nations. Made him a formidable king. How God gave the whole world into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. How all of Nebuchadnezzar's enemies were broken before him. How Nebuchadnezzar had the power of life and death to humble those and exalt others, to give life and to give death. But how even this great king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, if you remember from that dream, you, O king, are the head of gold. He was humbled. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled when he decided to lift himself up and exalt himself above the Most High God and refused to honor and glorify Him. We saw that a couple weeks back in chapter 4. How he was sort of turned into an animal-like creature until he understood the truth that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind. And then we get to the point of all this. So Daniel rehearses all this before Belshazzar, all of the things that his own father, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, had done. And he says, you knew this. You knew this, O Belshazzar, yet you refused to learn the lesson of your predecessor, the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And if God is going to humble a great king like him, what do you think he's going to do to you, who are a lesser king? That's what we see in verses 22 and 23. And you, his son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. That's the damning part of all this. Belshazzar knew all of this. He knew the history of Nebuchadnezzar. 
He knew what he had gone through and how he exalted himself and was humbled by the Most High God, the very Most High God whom Belshazzar himself was sort of dishonoring by using the vessels of the temple. And despite all this, Belshazzar did not humble his heart. And we see in verse 23 a list of all of Belshazzar's transgressions. How the very breath that God gave him, the very breath that ought to have been praising the Most High God, was being used to sacrilege and blaspheme the Most High God. Belshazzar refused to honor and glorify the Most High Creator and instead worship gods of the creation, you know, blind, deaf, and dumb gods of gold and silver, etc. Well, Daniel then goes on to read and interpret the message for the king, which was sent by the very hand of the Most High God. And the message, presumably written in Aramaic, simply read, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Now, these words have double meanings. Uh, they're used as words to describe monetary units, weights and measures. You know, as in the, the you know, mene is like the meanest. There's a, 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 a piece of currency. Shekel is a weight that is used to weigh uh, things and balances. And peres means to divide. But again, they're also verbs used to describe the act of numbering, weighing, and dividing. And the and the message is a very terse message from the hand of God, a message of judgment, which basically essentially says, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And Daniel gives the interpretation in verses 27 and 28. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The days of king, the kingdom of Babylon have been numbered and they are at an end. Belshazzar has been weighed in God's scales and been found wanting and lacking. And Babylon now will be divided and given into the hands of her enemies, the Persian Empire. And again, as we said at the beginning, this is a fulfillment that we saw in the dream that we saw back in chapter 2. How the head of gold would transition into the torso made of silver. God is in control of the kingdoms of men. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He gives them to whom He will, and He takes them from whom He will. He raises kings up. He brings them down. And then finally, in verses 29-31, through 31, we see the message fulfilled as this sort of forms an epilogue to the story here. And despite Daniel's earlier rejection of the reward, after hearing the, the message and the interpretation, Belshazzar still rewards Daniel. But little good did it do him because the message was fulfilled that very night. It's kind of reminiscent of the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 12. It's called the parable of the rich fool in which Jesus is there teaching and two brothers, one guy speaks up and says, tell my brother to give me the inheritance, my share of the inheritance. And he tells him that this parable was for the purpose of guarding against the covetousness that is in our own hearts. And he tells of a story of a rich man who has great wealth and he laments over the fact that he has, 
He doesn't have enough storage space to store all of his wealth. Poor old me. I have so much wealth. I have no place to store my wealth. What am I going to do? I guess I'll build another barn and I'll put my wealth there. And then I'll kick back, relax, and I'll count my money. I'll be like Scrooge McDuck counting my money in here as I uh, just glory in my own wealth. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says, God says to that person, fool, you fool, this very night, your soul will be required of you. And the man dies on the spot. And that is the moral of the story here. We see the moral of the story, I guess, in Luke 12, 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And here, Belshazzar failed to honor God. He failed to honor God with his life and was weighed and was found wanting. In fact, it's interesting that in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 15 and 17, we see the prophet speaking for God say that the nations are a drop in the bucket. They are like the dust on the scales. Right? You don't even bother to worry about the dust in the scales because they weigh nothing. A drop in the bucket is nothing. These kingdoms are nothing compared to God. Belshazzar was foolish in not heeding the lessons of his father and it cost him his life. Well, just as God humbled Belshazzar, so he will humble all people who exalt themselves above the Most High God. And the history of the world is loaded with stories of leaders and dictators and kings who thought themselves as gods. right? Leaders who thought that they would build an empire that would last forever. Nero, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, all of them thought that they were gods. All of them humbled before the Most High God. All of their kingdoms divided and given to others. And the message for us Christians who are trying to be faithful in a hostile world is to take heart. Because the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets them over whom He will. So remain faithful to the Lord despite who's in power, it doesn't matter because God will humble those leaders eventually. God will humble all world leaders before His own world leader, which is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So remain faithful to the Lord and He will preserve you. But furthermore, I think all of us have a little bit of Belshazzar lurking in our hearts, right? The unbeliever who mocks God and thinks that either God is not watching, God doesn't care, or there's no God at all to see what I'm doing will be in for a rude awakening. Because God will not be mocked. Honor God and give Him glory now before the Lord requires your life from you. But I think even believers, us, Christians, can exhibit a little bit of this Belshazzar behavior. Because if you think about all the things in your life that sort of irritate you and upset you, that sort of upset your happiness, upset your joy, or disrupt your good mood, whatever those things are, I can name a list, but I want to keep it generic because if I name a list, then you may say, well, you didn't name my thing, so I guess that's okay. So apply it how you will. But whatever things in our lives that cause us anger or frustration... Those are things that have, in a sense, become functional idols in our lives. Because they are things that we fail to entrust to a sovereign and providential God. 
And if God were to weigh all of our hearts on his scale, we would be like Belshazzar. We would be found wanting. We would be found lacking. And the good news is that there is one who was weighed by God. right? One who was weighed by God and found not to be lacking, not to be wanting, but to be found perfect, without blame or blemish, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Because nearly 2,000 years ago on Calvary, Jesus Christ was weighed in God's scales of judgment. And he was not found to be wanting. He was found perfectly righteous because Jesus Christ lived according to the law of God perfectly. He was judged for our sins because our sins were laid upon him. He stood in our place and took the punishment for our sins, that the, the punishment that we deserve, so that we could be righteous in him. Now, if you're an unbeliever and have never humbled yourself before God, then don't wait for the handwriting on the wall because by then it's too late. (laughs) If you see the handwriting on the wall, it's too late. You need to humble yourself before God now, repenting of your sin and placing your complete faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ alone, who lived and died so that you can have eternal life. And if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then repent of those things that sort of take you away from Jesus, that take you away from living faithfully before the Lord. Humble yourselves still before the Lord and trust in Christ who took that punishment for you. Rest in His perfect righteousness. Because when God looks at you, He's not going to see wanting anymore. He's going to see that you succeed, that you are perfectly righteous in Christ. But as long as we humble ourselves now before the Lord, we never have to worry about being weighed and found wanting on the day when Christ or when Jesus and God finds and brings judgment upon us. Let's pray.